Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Thank you for coming this evening. Why don't we stand and we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, with now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Shine on our hearts, O Lord, the light of thy divine knowledge, and illumine our hearts to be able to receive the announcing of thy good news. Set on us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling upon all carnal desires, we may begin to live according to thy good word, and to accomplish thy will in all things. For thou art the light and sanctification of our souls and bodies, and we give glory to thee with thine eternal Father, thine all-holy, good, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. All right. I gave you an introductory talk about synods and councils in general. I distinguished them very sharply so that people could tone down their worries a little bit. This thing that's about to come up in October is not another Vatican II. It's not another council. It doesn't have anything like that authority. Moreover, I'm happy to say today that I have confirmation of my point from the Code of Canon Law, the present Code of Canon Law, never mind the 1917 one that I like better. This is the, the current code. Canon law for ecumenical councils and other councils is found in canons 338 to 341. Four canons, 338 to 341. Separate and distinct canons govern synods. And those are canons 342 to 348. Canon 341, which is the last one on councils, deals with the binding force of an ecumenical council's decrees confirmed by the Pope. Only some bishops take part in the synod, namely the ones he invites, because a synod is just an extension of the Pope's exercise of his own office. It has no independent standing as a magisterial institution within the church. And hence, it's under his supreme control, for better or worse. The Pope gets to pick who's to come, gets to pick who are going to be the officers, gets to pick what topics they will discuss, and then gets to sit on whatever they put out, unless and until he decides to publish it or revise it and publish his own version instead. So, do not worry about the October Synod on the family. It's, from the point of view of the Magisterium, it is a non-event. Okay? However, this is not to take away the fact that a current crop of progressives in and about the church, is hoping to make something of the October Synod. 
And much of what they're doing is by way of false propaganda and sloppy statements. Oh, I read somewhere recently, oh, dear, councils and synods, those, those were synonymous words. Hello? They, they were synonymous in 200 AD. Okay? There's been a meeting. But they're not synonymous anymore. They haven't been synonymous in canon law for centuries. Um, why would anybody try to suggest that eh, what's coming is just like a council? <laughs> because they're hoping to pull off again the success they had in the aftermath of Vatican II. Okay. Never mind the council that happened in the aura of St. Peter's. The council they wanted to exploit was the one they hatched in the media. Full of half-truths, less than half-truths sometimes, they simply misrepresented what the bishops really did. And then demanded that all of us fall down on three knees and acknowledge this work of the Holy Spirit in the great ecumenical council. Okay? It was nonsense. And it has taken the church basically 35 to 40 years to work out of that false propaganda and reestablish the hermeneutic of continuity that really controls the right reading of Vatican Council II. All right. So they're hoping to exploit, progressives are hoping to exploit the upcoming synod to um, hoodwink the laity of the world into believing that we are now in a new age of liberalism in the church. Now, this liberalism is not supposed to represent, even they say this, the progressives say, we're not changing any doctrines. Oh, no. We're not even changing canon law. Oh, no. It's all going to stay the same. Well, then what the heck are we changing? We're going to be changing, they suggest, pastoral practice. Okay? Now then, we have always had the distinction in the church between dogma, its application in general laws, that's often canon law, and then the application of laws to individuals in specific cases. We've always had those distinctions. Many things, when you come to the last point, the application of the law to individual cases, is left to the discretion of the bishop. It's always been that way. <clears throat> but we started with the continuity that goes from the dogma to the canon law to the applications. A conceptual continuity, okay? So that the law under which we live in the church is the doctrine of the church lived out, right? Now then, what the progressives want to do is to introduce a different conception of pastoral practice. It is no longer to be the faith lived out. It is to be 
something else. Just a radically different exercise of the mind. So that we're no longer so much looking at dogma as we are at people and their problems and confronting those problems with the merciful love of Jesus. I can't think of any time in the history of the church when people's concrete problems have not been looked at by churchmen with the merciful love of Jesus. That's our constant practice. Okay? So what's supposed to be new about this? Well, <laughs> um, it gets very hard to say. Um, I looked up an article that appeared very recently in the Homiletical and Pastoral Review, which for years has been a highly orthodox magazine addressed to Catholic priests, the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Father Baker used to be the editor. He's retired now. Well, they published an article recently by a guy, a priest named Paul Anthony McGavin. And he's from Australia, and he is a muddlehead <laughs> of the first water. McGavin thinks that our tradition has long been worthy of blame for rigidly holding to each and every element of a syllogistic system. Ooh. Did you know syllogisms were bad? It's ah, a fault now. Rather than detract, um, the, the, the crux is that a dogmatic sacramental understanding has been taken as singularly determinative. Get that adverb, singularly determinative. The dogmatic sacramental understanding, this is marriage now, has been taken as singularly determinative. In other words, you can't start, supposedly, with the doctrine and reason out the proper canonical regulations and then the proper applications. That's syllogistic. Whoa. He even attacks this mentality as analytical. Oh. Syllogisms and analysis. Oh my goodness. Well, what do we need instead? Oh. Says McGavin, we need a comprehensive theology of the gospel. We get rid of any closed system of philosophical theology. There's no closed system character to remain. Rather, we just look at the facts and interpret. So we look at the facts of human misery, human unhappiness, human pain. In other words, we look at these exceedingly comfortable Germans in Freiburg and other such dioceses who want to take communion despite their fake marriages. And we say, oh, poor suffering things. We're looking at you with eyes of mercy, etc. 
The issues are ones of pastoral practice, and apparently pastoral practice is in no way a deductive consequence of any doctrine. Okay. As we used to say in French, en tant qu'il peut, let him who can understand that understand it. Basically, what it wants to do is say, we no longer hold on to certain definite truths and reason from them. What we do, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't abandon the truths. Oh my goodness, no. We don't abandon any truths, and the reasoning from them has its place in manual theology and so on and so on. That, that's all fine. But what we do is we just put on a different set of glasses. We change our starting point. We open up a different perspective. We just look at people and their need for mercy. Okay. Okay. Then this guy, McGavin, proposes a solution that he thinks is based on Cosper's idea of a finding a way to readmit to the Eucharist people who have involved themselves in non-Catholic marriages. The spouse was still alive. They left the spouse. They married again outside the church. And now they want some pastoral care that they didn't seem to want very much when they took these decisions. Okay. I decided it was time to look at what Casper actually said. So I dug up his document, presented to the previous session of the Synod. And what do I find? He says, look, we've got to do something about all the people who are in, in bad marriages. Vastly expanding the process of nullity would not be right. It would leave the impression that the church is being dishonest. She's talking about nullifications when she's in fact handing out divorces. Thank you, Cardinal Cockrell. Wisely seen. Yes. So that's not the answer. Um, A divorced and remarried person, he says, under certain conditions, can be readmitted to the Eucharist. And then he spells out what these conditions are. Number one, the person has to repent the failure of his first marriage. Okay, sorry about that. Second, he has to have clarified the obligations of his first marriage. Are you clear in your head now that it was indissoluble? Yes, Father, I'm clear on that now. Okay. What's next? He cannot turn back. He cannot abandon without further harm the responsibilities he's taken on in his new civil marriage. Got a wife to support, maybe children by the second marriage, so he can't just walk away. Okay. He's doing the best he can to live out the possibilities of the second marriage on the basis of faith, e.g., he's raising his children in the faith. Good idea. Yeah. 
Then finally, if he has a desire for the sacraments, should we or can we deny him after a period of time in a new direction? After he's had time to repent and settle into this new, more faithful frame of mind, can we call that a metanoia, a conversion, a repentance? Admit this person to the sacrament of penance and then to communion. All right. Now, throughout the world, progressives are calling for the synod to agree to this proposal by Ratzinger on the ground. This is going to make a huge difference. Millions of unhappy people are going to be happy with the church again. Cosper says otherwise. He's just stated these five conditions, and then he said, this would not be a general solution. Oh. It's not the wide road of the masses. Oh. But rather the narrow path of what is probably the smaller segment of the divorced and remarried, namely those sincerely interested in the sacraments. In other words, this isn't going to bring anybody back who wasn't beating down the door to come back already. Now, how many of those fat, happy, second married Catholics in Germany are there who are all that desperate to come back? A few, perhaps, but certainly not many. Okay. Now, I've laid out his solution. What he says about that solution, which is at odds with the press presentation of what a difference this is going to make. Then he goes on, and this is where I get interested. He lays out the basis for this. I mean, after all, is this a proposal out of thin air? Or does it have some sort of background, some precedent in the church? You and I say, no, it doesn't have any precedent in the church. Cardinal Cosper thinks otherwise. He says, in the early church, in many local churches, by customary law, there was, after a time of repentance, the practice of pastoral tolerance of clemency and indulgence for people in second marriages. It is against this background that Canon 8 of the Council of Nicaea must be understood. Canon 8 of the Council was aimed against the rigorism of novation, etc. And talking about this provision for the uh, reconciling of the novationists um, St. Basil said it's not unreasonable. Origen said it's not unreasonable. Gregory Nazianzus said it's not unreasonable. So it would seem that we have a basis in history for an earlier practice of the church, still around at the time of the Council of Nicaea, which is what, 325 AD, right? 
that would tolerate second marriages. Then I looked into Casper's footnotes and found his dependence on a scholar named Soretti and um, a few others who have made this claim that Canon 8 of Nicaea is about second marriages in general. Now, would you like me to read it to you? All right, here it comes. Canon 8 from the Council of Nicaea. For those who call themselves pure, if they should wish to enter the Catholic Church, this holy and great council establishes dot, 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 before all else, they should declare openly in writing that they accept and follow the teachings of the Catholic Church, and that is that they will enter into communion both with those who have gone on to second marriages and with those who have lapsed into persecutions for whom time and circumstances of penance have been established, so as to follow in everything the decisions of the Catholic and Apostolic Church." Oh boy. It sounds as though, at the Council of Nicaea, in order to reconcile the Novatians, it was recognized that in properly conducted churches, there could be a pastoral provision for those who have gone on into second marriages. And if you're not willing to be a co-communicant with those people, you can't come in. Is that what it sounds like? Okay. <sighs> when I saw this use of Canon 8 from Nicaea, I said to myself, who are these pure ones? Everybody agrees. It's the sect of Novation. They called themselves the Cathari, the pure. They were the first ones to do so. They have no connection with that later Manichaean sect that also called themselves the pure. This is the Novatian schism. Novatian had been a priest in the clergy of Rome, and he strongly resisted giving penance to those who had married a second time or to anyone who had lapsed in a time of persecution. No penance for them. What was he talking about with second marriages? <laughs> this is where the fun starts. It had nothing to do with people whose spouses were still alive. The second marriages were the marriages of widows after their husband had died, or widowers after the wife had died. Wait a minute. What's the matter with that? Yeah. I mean, even St. Paul said, you know, if it's a young widow, let her marry again. That's in 1 Timothy. Yeah. What's the problem here? Aha. The Novatians had an idea of marriage that was extremely lofty and based upon the doctrine of St. Paul that marriage is a, a likeness, in marriage there's a likeness of the relation between Christ and the church. Okay. That relation is unique. Christ has only one spouse, the church. 
He never takes a second. Of course, the church isn't supposed to die either, is it? But never mind that wrinkle. Novation argued that the Christian ideal is monogamia, one marriage. When your spouse dies, what you are supposed to do is remain chaste. The ideal is chaste widowhood or chaste widowerhood. And Novation also had his own interesting ideas about wherein mass matrimonial uh, chastity consisted. You and I think we know. It consists in sticking to your spouse and not bothering with anybody else. No, 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 said Novation. Marital chastity requires complete continence. Yeah. Well, I guess you have to consummate the marriage. Yeah. But after that, complete continence. Hello? What planet was this guy living on? Um, so the objection to Second, taking communion with people in second marriages that the Novationists held was an objection to permitting widows to marry again and widowers to marry again. It had nothing to do with people whose spouses were still alive. Nothing to do with it. And so this, the Novation doctrine was nothing like the present marital discipline of the church. And what, that, what Nicaea provided for was nothing like Casper's proposal. Okay? Now then, the only point of ambiguity that needs to be mentioned here is that in the first, second, third centuries, the word digameia, or bigamy, digamy if you're in Greek, bigamy if you're in Latin, was used any time there was a second marriage, even if the first spouse was dead. Okay. So the term second marriages was extremely widely used. And now the liberals come along and say, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Nicaea says, don't, uh, don't refuse to have communion with those involved in second marriages. I mean, oh, that's what Casper's talking about. Oh, it's not. Not at all. How do we know that this was the teaching of the Novationists? Answer, they got it from Montanus. Montanus was a, well, ultimately a schismatic figure quite a rigorist about certain things. He insisted that the human hierarchy in the church had failed. From now on, we were being dictated to by the Holy Spirit with himself as principal mouthpiece thereof. So what the Holy Spirit whispers to Montanus is law for the church. And so he quarreled with popes and so on. An important Latin Catholic writer at one time a Catholic writer, named Tertullian, 
while he was still a Catholic, wrote a book, De Matrimonio, in which he rejected the position of Montanus and defended the remarriage of widows and widowers on the explicit basis of what's in Scripture. But then a funny thing happened to Tertullian. He also went off the rails and decided that Montanus had been right after all, turned around and started denouncing um, second marriages. Okay? Wrote another book about it, De Pudicitia. So here you have an ideology. That, in favor, that favors strict continence even within marriage and absolutely no provision for ever having a second spouse. Okay? That completely antique, forgotten position is now being presented under false wrappings as some sort of precedent for what Casper wants to do. Does everybody see how ridiculous that is? But they think we didn't know this stuff? They think none of us can read Greek? They think none of us ever heard of Novation? This stuff is in the history books, it's old hat. But of course you can guarantee that um, liberal Catholics, that is to say low information Catholics, will not have heard of any of this, and that they can have the wool pulled over their eyes. That's it. What about Cardinal Ratzinger? Didn't he say some things uh, about the possibility of looking at this problem of the remarried? Yeah, he did. He did. His solution for the remarried is the perfectly traditional solution. Do you want to repent your marriage? Fine. You can come back to the church. Then the question is, how do you repent of a marriage? What you are agreeing to when you say, I do, is not simply a, um, a, uh, uh, like a contract you can then forswear. It is an agreement to a union of life in which spousal acts are a regular part. Yes? Every time you commit, I shouldn't say commit, every time you perform a spousal act with a person whom you have married, you are living out the marriage. That's why they're called marital acts. You're living out the marriage. So now do you want to repent? of having made a marriage, you now see, well, it wasn't right, it wasn't canonical, it wasn't licit. You want to repent? Fine. Stop doing that thing in bed. Renounce marital, re agree to live as brother and sister. Then you can come back to the church. And yeah, we'll give you a period of penance. Yeah. And then when we're satisfied that you're living up to this program, of brother and sister matrimony, quote unquote, we admit you back to the church because you're no longer sinning 
in that second marriage. It's clear, perfectly clear. That's what Rossinger proposed. And as far as how to handle texts that seem to talk about second marriage in another context, Ratzinger commended a study done by a French patristic scholar named Pelland, P-E-L-L-A-N-D. He said, Father Pelland has shown us the way to reconcile, understand these texts. <clears throat> well, guess what? Father Pelland and his brother French Jesuit, Henri Crouzet, C-R-O-U-Z-E-T, are the most vociferous opponents of this ridiculous use of Nicaea Canon 8 and other early testimonies. They completely reject what Cosper's friends are trying to do with those texts, completely. Well, yeah, uh, but, but wait a minute. Okay, here we get the semi-literate rejoinder. Didn't you ever hear of the, of, of the Synod of the Council or whatever of Ansira? Yeah, I heard of that. Well, doesn't Ansira say that uh, people can be admitted to the sacraments only after people only after a period of penance? They have to have satisfied their penance, and then and then and then and then. Yeah. So what's that about? Pelland explains. Crozet explains, Rotzinger explains, it was all about the fact that, number one, there was still hesitance to give ceremonial or solemn marriage to people in a second union. All right? So they wanted to make sure the widow had the correct frame of mind. Okay, so they wouldn't let her marry again right away. Now, in present canon law, you don't have to wait. If your husband dies, you can marry again, PDQ. <laughs> don't try it the next day, but pretty quick. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in those days and in those cities that were met at Ensira, you couldn't. There had to be a time of testing and penance. Okay, so what? Not a problem. The issue was still marriage after a spouse has died. That was the issue. <sighs> Were there any other kinds of cases handled in the ancient church that might be somehow closer to what Casper wants to talk about and what's the sin of the time? Anything at all? Yes. I'm familiar with one case, really weird case. This is from the fourth century, in the time of Pope St. Leo the Great. <laughs> there, was a, there was a woman whose husband had been a soldier, was a soldier, and he disappeared. Not a word from him. And 11 years went by. Well, now, Roman law in that period still required only a five-year waiting period. After your husband dies, 
and you marry again, or no, no, your husband doesn't die, he disappears. If your husband disappears and you're not sure whether he's dead, how long do you have to wait before you're free to marry again? The ancient Roman answer was five years. We have an answer in American law to this day. What is it? Seven years, I think. Yes. Well, this guy was gone for 11 years. In perfectly good faith, his widow married again. After 11 years, the guy turns up alive. What to do? Notice, this case is, does not involve a conscious decision to marry when your spouse still lives. This woman exercised her judgment, her perfectly reasonable judgment, that he was dead. He was presumed dead. That's why she had a new family. So he comes back. Case goes to the Pope. Does she have to repudiate her new family? And the Pope said no. No. Okay. In other words, when you have been an absent spouse for a sufficient length of time to give every reasonable impression that you're no longer among the living, the consent of your previous spouse is no longer binding. It sort of wears out. She got to keep her new family. Now, there may have been more to the pastoral solution, but it's a, it was a very rare. Has anybody seen here the, the Retour de Martinguer? Yeah. The movie, same sort of situation. Rare as all get out. It's the only situation we have reported from patristic times and gives absolutely no support to the idea that men or women who are perfectly aware that their husbands and wives are still alive and who just don't <coughs> want to live with them anymore and move on to another family can get back to communion. There is no precedent. So if there's no patristic precedent, and there ain't, then Casper's proposal hangs on thin air. It's like saying, well, let's have mercy with no basis for saying this is a case for mercy. No basis. See what I mean? All right. So the worldwide publicity that has been ginned up for the synod is a dishonest publicity. Okay. I have my doubts that the Synod will do anything like what Casper wants. His proposal already came up in October of last year, and he did not get the votes. There's no reason he should get them this year, because even more cardinals have come out and said it's impossible. Okay. And we are all warned now. We are all prepared. And we're not going to be suckered in again the way we were after Vatican II. Are we? Okay. You can't pass this off as conciliar legislation. We're now in a post-conciliar world. The heck we are. We're in the same world we've always been in. The world in which Catholic dogma is simply true 
And your canonical precepts and your pastoral practices are derived from the doctrine that is true. Okay? That's really all I have to say. So thank you very much for your attention. I was alarmed um, about what you reported about the article in the Harmonetical and Pastoral Review. Uh, does it say something about the editorial board? Is that uh, how, how would that have gotten into that journal? There are two possibilities, and I don't know which is the case. Possibility number one is the new editor is no good. <laughs> Possibility number two is he's not so bad, but in view of the big, wide-ranging discussion of the Pope's call for open and frank discussion, he decided to admit an article by this off-the-wall creep, which is probably a little bit unwise, but... Dr. Marshall, you said at the beginning of your talk not to worry about the coming synod because it has no magisterial authority. Yeah, but I think I'm, I, for one, I'm going to ask my own question here. Yes, but what if? It's got zero force until the Pope says this is how it has to be from now on. Then there's going to be a schism in the church because there are a number of cardinals who, says, who have said, no, we're not going to follow this. Prominent cardinals have said, no, it can't be done. If the case against Cardinal Casper is as strong as it sounds like it is, why would the Pope even allow the subject to be brought up in a synod? He's surrounded by people who are telling him, you've got to do something about this problem of the divorced and remarried. Okay. And Casper um, has an idea, so the Pope says, let's hear it. And the fact that he says, let's hear it, doesn't mean he's going to adopt it. it it's, it's nothing but a personal opinion on his part, stands or falls, with the evidence for it. Right? Well, what can I tell you? They didn't elect me pope. <laughs> we have another man who has much more patience with half-baked ideas. You never know, sometimes there's a grain of truth hidden somewhere, even in a half-baked idea. Are the bishops in the synod that will be uh, convening different from the bishops of a year ago? Uh, in terms of uh, the reports we, we hear, you know, even in today, I read in the National Catholic Register, there is a, a bent toward uh, some of these dissident views that are stacking it towards uh, perhaps the, an outcome that is. Uh, yeah, well, Mr. Penton, who writes for the Register, is very worried about manipulation. And I think he's prudent to be worried about that. Uh, however, the list of bishops uh, who are coming uh, is, is not wildly tilted. And as a matter of fact, the Pope intervened to put four more Americans uh, on the attendee list for that synod, and they included uh, Cardinal Dolan and somebody else who's good, I forget. There's a, there are a couple of uh, strong critics of Casper's position who've been put on, put in the synod. <laughs>
So I'm not worried about that. What makes this statement from the church infallible? Oh, well, number one, it has to be issued by an authority capable of making such judgments, such as the Holy See or an ecumenical council. Number two, it has to be a doctrinal statement about faith and morals. Okay, can't be about anything you please. It's got to be about a matter of faith and morals. That was number two. Number three, it has got to be issued in such a way that the faithful are bound to uh, agree to it uh, in perpetuity. In other words, this is binding in perpetuity on the basis of divine revelation. All right? And uh, what else? That's about it. It's got to be phrased in such a way that um, it, it says, from now on, this is how you will state our faith. Okay? And if it isn't stated that way, then it doesn't count as infallible. It may be, um, it, it may be a statement which uh, has great authority from prior tradition, but uh, it wouldn't be phrased so as to be in and of itself, by its phraseology, infallible. I know the Catholic bishops in Africa know this is a problem. Uh, many, many um, Catholics are become, uh, many, many natives are becoming Catholics. Now what happens when a man has three or four wives and they have all these kids? What's going to happen? Do you know? What's going to happen? Do you know? <sighs> well, uh, the church has a long history dealing with these situations in missionary countries. Uh, the guy is going to have to give up all but one of his wives. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't think so. Uh, well, and it better not be one that he married after he was baptized. Uh, uh, well, or let's put it this way. If there's a baptism that intervenes, it changes the case to some extent because the previous marriages are not sacramental. Uh, if he's got uh, multiple wives that he acquired after he was baptized, we have a problem uh, with, with the local uh, clergy. Uh, and then he's going to have to give some up. And... Um, He's going to have to agree to live with just one wife and cut off the others from conjugal contact. Uh, such judgments, by the way, do not require the illegitimization of the children from prior unions. Hi, Doctor. I just um, I had a question about um, you said in the last uh, seminar about. Uh, pastoral and um, practical judgments of synods and local councils not being um, binding. Does that apply to pastoral and practical um, uh, opinions or, or decisions of a pope? And if so, does that, um, does that apply to encyclicals or would that also apply to even specifically more like the, the annulment process? Is that an, an, a pastoral decision or is, yeah? 
purely pastoral. Um, the issue of truth does not come up. What comes up is the issue of practicality, suitability. Uh, will it produce more evil than it supposed to prevent? Sometimes those things are just not knowable in advance. The only thing we know for sure is that the church will never commit herself as a whole to a pastoral practice which ruins her. But that doesn't say how bad the damage can be. Uh, Dr. Marshner, I take from your comments that you uh, don't approve of the push on the part of the other side, the people leading it. Uh, given the fact that presumably they know or should be able to learn as much as you do about this, why is it that they are pushing this? It seems to me it's, at a minimum, intellectually dishonest. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, how about stealth churchmanship? Stealth churchmanship. Okay? They know they cannot come out four square and say, time to reconsider that indissolubility of marriage business. Can't change that. They know that they can't throw out all of the existing canon law. Can't do it. So they look for a side way around it. Leave all that standing. But then we'll open up the possibility of another perspective, which is purely pastoral and so on. It doesn't seem to have any logical connection with the existing doctrine or practice or, 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 or law. We'll just sort of change the practice, make the practice friendlier and more merciful and, uh, and, and whatnot. Well, but why bother to do that? The deeper agenda here, this is speculation on my part, but the deeper agenda here is to open up cognitive dissidence. Don't know that term? Cognitive dissidence between the church's tradition and her present pastoral practice. We can't figure out how the present pastoral practice exactly squares with what we've always taught, we've always believed. So that's, you know, oh, well, then they'll say, well, you see, it's a mystery. You just have to hold on to both things. Don't worry about trying to, no, no. You're looking for a rational solution. You're a favor of syllogisms, I know you. Don't try to do that. Just hold on to both sides. Uh, do you see a contradiction? Don't worry about it. Hold faithfully on to both sides. And, um, so what? Well, if you hold on to both sides, then you accept their new pastoralism okay, in place of the old. That's the problem. Okay? Uh, you know, as far as uh, you know, hanging on to two sides of a, of a question that, of a thing that seems to be irreconcilable, that can be a good pastoral practice. Good pastoral advice. You don't understand how God can be one and three? Just hold on to both. Okay? Accept his unity. Accept his threeness. Let him worry about how they fit together. All right? And you know, there are other cases like that as well. Lots of cases in dogma. You don't, you, don't, you don't understand how God can be also a man and a man also God? Don't worry about it. 
Hold on to both sides of the truth. That's Catholic. Don't throw one of them away. That's good advice. But in this case, we're being asked to hold on to both sides of what? The doctrine on the one side and a groundless shift of pastoral practice on the other. Why should we hold on to that? Pardon me. I'm, I'm, I'm not taking that bait. And I'm not interested in cognitive dis dissonance in my life as a Catholic. We've had abundant, wonderful, even miraculous clarity in the church ever since the Council of Trent and before. I just have to give in a word of praise for the Council of Trent. <laughs> even the prose is gorgeous. Ah. We've had wonderful, luminous clarity about so many things and a faithful pastoralism from Rome and from our bishops. And why in the world should we sacrifice that? Why walk into darkness when there's no mystery to be faced? We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.